it was perhaps inevitable <coughs> that we would use a musical opening, uh, namely the Battle Hymn of the Republic. The occasion is a reunion with an old friend, one of America's great scholars, James McPherson, who um, has spent most of his career as professor of history at Princeton University and has spent virtually all of that career studying the American Civil War. His newest book, published only a few months ago, is titled The War That Forged a Nation, Why the Civil War Still Matters. Um, I'm going to play this naively and directly and simply, uh, James McPherson. Why does that war of 150 years ago, more or less, still matter so much? Well, uh, for several reasons. Uh, One is that it uh, preserved the United States as one nation uh, and transformed the Union, uh, a relatively loose federation of states, into a nation. Uh, And in the process, it abolished the institution of slavery, which had plagued the country from the very beginning. Uh, And with the uh, Reconstruction Amendments that grew out of the Civil War, the 14th and 15th Amendments of the Constitution uh, granted equal citizenship to the freed slaves, gave them the right to vote, uh, and that uh, those amendments have been the basis for uh, the advances in civil rights that we've made in the last half century. Um, I think the the war also determined the the shape of uh, American culture, American society, the American economic order. Uh, before 1861, two socioeconomic and cultural systems competed with each other, uh, one based on free labor, uh, a democratic uh, form of entrepreneurial capitalism uh, concentrated in the North, the other a kind of um, uh, feudalistic society based on slave labor, a plantation society, uh, rural, agricultural in the South. Now, looking back on it, <laughs> it seems like the triumph of Free labor capitalism was inevitable, <clears throat> but in the antebellum period, uh, there was no guarantee of that. Uh, and in fact, uh, the United States government was dominated during most of the first 70 years of its history uh, by plantation slavery, by the representatives from the South, two thirds of the presidents of the United States from 1789 down to 1861 were Southerners and slaveholders. Uh, Through their control of the Democratic Party, they controlled Congress. Uh, They dominated the Supreme Court. Uh, The Civil War changed all that uh, and put an end to slavery, uh, to the plantation society that uh, uh, slavery was based on, and loosed uh, a a kind of um, economic uh, uh, takeoff. Uh, to turn the United States into the leading industrial as well as agricultural producer in the world and lay the basis for uh, the emergence of the United States as a great power in the, in the 20th century. Yet it is, it is clear, reading this fine new book of yours, which uh, combines or pulls together a number of essays separately written, many of them for the New York Review of Books, though I know you've reworked them and 
fitted all of this together. It's clear that, um, uh, in your view, uh, this war, if it um, had not been waged, would have given us a totally different line of history. I'm always tempted, though historians don't usually like this game as much as I do, to play the counterfactual game. So I put to you this simple counterfactual. Let us assume that somehow um, the North, Fort Sumter was attacked, the South declared its um, its confederacy and its removal from, its secession from the Union. And what if somehow other voices had prevailed or Lincoln had thought it through differently and he went with the thought, let them go. If they want to go, let them go. It's their mistake. We are still a strong and major nation and will continue to prosper. What if there had been no civil war and those two nations occupied this portion of the North American continent uh, as of uh, late 1861. Where would we be now in the year 2015? Well, we might still be uh, two nations. Uh, we might be more than two nations, uh, because if the South had succeeded in um, uh, creating a separate nation, uh, that could have constituted a precedent for other aggrieved regional uh, uh, minorities at some future time to secede from the United States. For example, in the 1890s, when there was a conflict between uh, the eastern states and the western populist states, uh, if there had been a successful example of secession, uh, the western states might have seceded from uh, the uh, what remained of the United States, and we would have turned into three nations. But, but could we possibly visualize <clears throat> or imagine a United States, say, going into the 20th century, in the year 1900, still in the South, in the Confederate States of America, maintaining the institution of slavery? Well, I think that slavery probably would have uh, persisted for several decades if the South had succeeded in really? establishing its uh, independence. Uh, slavery has existed in other societies. Uh, it existed in uh, Cuba and in uh, Brazil until the 1880s. And it was abolished then only because it had also already disappeared from the United States. Uh, it, it's virtually impossible to imagine slavery persisting until today, but it quite possibly could have persisted uh, into the 20th century. Yeah. Um, so we might be several nations today. Uh, there wouldn't have been a, a 14th and 15th Amendment to become the constitutional basis for um, civil rights, uh, if there had not been a civil war, uh, there would have been all kinds of changes uh, uh, in in the way the, the country or the two countries or the several countries uh, evolved. I ran into oh. a, a stunning statistic in reading your book. I've read many of your books. We've discussed them on previous radio programs. I've always uh, assumed or I've always known that the total number of military fatalities in the Civil War were 600,000 uh, Confederates and Union soldiers slain in the Civil War or dying shortly after their wounds were sustained. I now learn, and obviously um, research has gone forward on this and changed the figure, that the figure is actually a quarter of a million. 750,000 um, military die in that war. 
that's the latest uh, uh, estimate uh, based on analysis of census returns from the 1860s, 70s, and 80s yeah. censuses. Um, and it's been pretty widely accepted uh, as accurate. Uh, the the um, old figure of 620,000 clearly undercounted especially the number of Confederate soldier deaths. Uh-huh. Uh, and so most of the revision uh, probably is a, a consequence of uh, a greater number of uh, Confederate deaths than we had previously realized. As uh, in, which makes the impact of the war even more. Uh, quite so. I um, have two quotations I want to uh, give to you. You know both of them well, I'm sure. But these are not quotations from Abraham Lincoln, um, but rather from his most victorious general, Ulysses Grant who later on serves as president of the United States. After he's finished his presidential term and he's touring Europe, he's meeting with Otto von Bismarck, who has reorganized uh, Europe, essentially, um, as the man who really, for a long while, is running Prussia. And Grant says to Bismarck, as soon as slavery fired upon the flag, it was felt, we all felt, even those who did not object to slaves, that slavery must be destroyed. We felt that it was a stain to the Union that men should be bought and sold like cattle. Uh, he comes to the judgment quite early, that you certainly come to in this book, that yes, slavery was always the prime issue, even though Lincoln had some difficulty fully confronting uh, or fully openly acknowledging that that was the prime issue. But here I go to something else from Ulysses Grant in his memoirs. You know this quote, I'm sure, and I wonder what your reaction to it is. Uh, he says of um, of um, the Mexican War, in which he fought as a very young lieutenant, he says, the Southern Rebellion was largely the outgrowth of the Mexican War. Nations, like individuals, are punished for their transgressions. We got our punishment in the most sanguinary and expensive war of modern times. He's saying... We were sinning, we sinned in the Mexican War, and we paid for our sins in the Civil War. Well, what he was talking about was the Mexican War reopened the question of uh, the status of slavery in the territories. Uh, the American victory in the Mexican War uh, added one quarter to the size of the United States. It was a huge acquisition of territory. Yes. Uh, and it was brought on by the American annexation of Texas and the dispute over the border of Texas. When, and Texas, of course, had come in as a slave state and then added a huge new uh, uh, additional uh, uh, amount of slave territory. And that uh, really reopened a question that uh, the Americans thought they had settled with the Compromise of 1820, uh, that... Uh, marked out part of the Louisiana Purchase Territory for slavery and part for freedom. But now you had this huge new territory added from Mexico, and it raised the question of whether slavery was going to be prohibited or allowed in Mexican, the accession of Mexican territory. And uh, a, a congressman from Pennsylvania named David Wilmot introduced a resolution in the House in 1846 saying uh, that... Um, no territory acquired for Mexico would be open to slavery. Well, it was defeated by uh, Southerners in Congress, but it became the kind of touchstone of political debate for the next 15 years. 
from 1846 until uh, the war started in 1861, and all of the divisive issues uh, that eventually led to uh, secession and to war in the 1850s uh, occurred over this question of whether slavery was to be allowed uh, in the new territories and the new states that would grow out of uh, the territory acquired from Mexico. And so that's why Grant said that uh, the Mexican War brought on the Civil War, the sin of uh, our war against Mexico brought on, and the sin of slavery brought on the punishment of the Civil War. Was our invasion of Mexico itself truly sinful? Um, well, it depends, I guess, on how you define sin. Yeah. Uh, Grant thought so. He called it the Wicked War. Uh, many in the in the United States, especially in the northeastern states, uh, thought it was a sinful war, that it was a war of aggression against a weaker people uh, in the interest of, uh, of conquering and adding territory. Um, a lot of Americans disagreed. Uh, they thought, uh, they believed in what was called the manifest destiny of the American people to occupy the entire continent. Um, so there's one of those debates that uh, went on for years, and uh, it, it's still something of a debate among historians today. Uh, many of them think that it was an unjust war. Others think that it was a, um, a, a war that uh, uh, was a, a natural outgrowth of an expansionist society and an expansionist co uh, economy. Uh, Robert E. Lee, of course, fought in that war at a higher level of command than Ulysses Grant. In fact, Grant, that uh, famous memoir of his, uh, reports that at Appomattox, Lee told Grant, I remember you well from the Mexican War, but Grant doubts it and says, I was just a junior, he was a lieutenant colonel, and I doubt that he really remembered me, but it was kind that he told me that he did. But yeah, how, did, right. how did Robert E. Lee feel about the war as he fought in it, and fought well in it? Uh, I don't think Lee ever recorded his opinion uh, of the justification or the justness of the war. Uh, as you say, he was uh, an important uh, uh, staff officer under Winfield Scott's uh, command, Scott being the conqueror of Mexico, yeah. and Lee played an important role in some of the American victories that led to uh, the ultimate victory in the war. But as far as I'm aware, Lee never expressed an opinion about the uh, the justness of the war, uh, unlike Grant, who came to think that it was a, a very unjust war, even though uh, he fought in it. What an opinion that Lee did express later on as the war clouds gathered was, I would rather see slavery instantly abolished than see uh, any secession from the Union by the states of the South. But once uh, his state went out, Virginia, yeah. in the interests of defending slavery, he did not hesitate to uh, choose a side with Virginia. Um, consistent, I suppose, but also in some ways that seems, um, still seems enigmatic. Because he, uh, apparently as a Christian, felt that slavery was evil, though to be sure his family had held slaves. Well, a lot of Americans uh, shared that opinion in the uh, from the age of the Revolution down to the Civil War. Thomas Jefferson owned slaves, but at mm -hmm. the same time he considered slavery wrong. Most of the Founding Fathers owned slaves. Well, George Washington did. George Washington did, although he freed his slaves by will uh, after when he died. Uh, 
most of them, uh, many of them, I should say, uh, thought slavery was wrong. But on the other hand, they did not know what to do about it, and they hoped that it would eventually disappear in God's own good time. Um, and I and, and I think that's what. Uh, it, but in the meantime, uh, it was the basis of a, of a social and economic order which could not be suddenly uh, uh, ended without causing great chaos and, and uh, violence. I think that was Robert E. Lee's position. Uh, he did think that slavery was wrong, and he hoped that it would eventually disappear. But in the meantime, it was part of a, it was an entrenched part of a social order of which he was also a part, uh, and therefore he was going to he was going to uh, defend that social order. Yes, and his his ultimate nation, he seemed to feel, was Virginia rather than the United States. That's right. Uh, his loyalty, his first loyalty, was to Virginia. Even though, of course, he has spent his entire career as an officer in uh, the United States Army, and was the the supervisor, the commandant of West Point for about four years. Yes, he was superintendent of West Point. That's right. Um, we are drawing from James McPherson's uh, newest book. This must be your twenty fourth or twenty fifth uh, dealing with Civil War issues. Uh, this one is titled "The Way the War That Forged a Nation," and the subtitle "Why the Civil War Still Matters." And what haunts the reader of this book is the suggestion, it's more than a suggestion, it is an assertion, that the issues of the Civil War uh, were magnified by the war, they were resolved in terms of the kinds of settlements that followed upon the victory of the North over the Confederacy, but that those issues, many of them, still persist 150 years after the conclusion of that war. Um, And... uh, that, as I say, is a haunting thought. Let's see how you develop it further in continuing conversation right after this. We are honored to have as our guest today an old friend, James McPherson, who is retired from the position of professor of history at Princeton University. Apparently, we've lost the phone connection, so we're going to uh, renew it, and our engineer is working on that at the moment. Um, that's a side story worth examining at times of the perils of talk shows depending upon phone lines. We are now uh, reconnected, I trust. Uh, James McPherson, you hear me again, I trust. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Good. Um, I was um, just quickly reviewing that you are, in fact, our guest, and it's a great honor to have you here. I think we've probably done uh, three or four programs in the past um, as we've celebrated the publication of various ones of your books. The one that won the Pulitzer Prize was, I think, The Battle Cry of Freedom. Is that right? That's correct, yes. Uh, and uh, was that uh, that was the one about Antietam? No, no, it was about the entire Civil War era. Which one? Uh, what, what, 850 pages, yeah. Right. The book about Antietam was called The Crossroads of Freedom. That's what I was trying to remember. Yeah. I remember we had a very uh, startling, and to me, a, a wonderfully interesting conversation on that, as we have on all of those books. And now, as I said earlier, I'm sort of haunted by the feeling that you are saying in this book and the various separate essays, um, uh, with the subtitle, Why the Civil War Still Matters, is that some of those issues remain not yet fully resolved and settled. Well, clearly the most important one that's not fully resolved and settled is the issue of, sla- of, uh, of uh, race relations. Yes. Um, White supremacy uh, was at the basis of the institution of slavery. Uh, 
uh, it was a form of labor exploitation by one race of, uh, of one race by another, and the defense of uh, the institution of slavery, the pro-slavery argument, was based on uh, elaborate theories of, of white supremacy. Uh, the abolition of slavery uh, abolished the institution, uh, and the constitutional amendments that grew out of the Civil War uh, guaranteed the freed slaves uh, equal civil and political rights, but they did not uh, uh, change or did not entirely abolish the, the uh, uh, convictions, the philosophy uh, of white supremacy on which slavery had been based and on which it had been uh, defended. And uh, with the retreat uh, from Reconstruction uh, in the 1870s and, and after, uh, the southern states reasserted uh, many of the institutions of white supremacy in the form of segregation and disfranchisement and lynching and uh, the whole Jim Crow system which persisted uh, for almost a century uh, until the civil rights movement of the mid, uh, mid and late 20th century uh, reasserted uh, the uh, ideals uh, of equal rights uh, on, on which uh, the 14th and that the 14th and 15th amendments uh, two of the most important results of the civil war uh, had had uh, inserted into the Constitution, and so, but those issues, uh, white supremacy, uh, are are still with. Are, we, are you still there? Yes, we are. Oh, uh, uh, the issues of white supremacy are still with us in the society today, and of course, the headlines in almost every newspaper, uh, every day's newspaper, or the leading story on the, the news programs, uh, has to do with issues of race. Uh, and so that central issue of the Civil War, slavery and race, is still with us in uh, other uh, forms today. Uh, and so many of the debates uh, from the Civil War period uh, are still relevant today to uh, to the ways in which we're trying to deal with those questions. You've been studying and writing about the Civil War since you started your graduate work in history at Johns Hopkins in the 1950s, I believe. Yes, with C with C. Van Woodward, who was uh, the great historian of the Civil War uh, at that point. Um, uh, cast your mind back to yourself as a young graduate student studying the Civil War and getting deeply engrossed in it in the 1950s in your own graduate studies. Would you have uh, expected then that uh, some, uh, let me see, well, some 60 years later at least, we would still have trouble, friction, um, argument, failed assuagement in general, continuing national tension between white and black? Well, I think that could have been anticipated in the 1950s and 1960s. Of course, uh, uh, the issues were uh, uh, hugely important then. I was in graduate school from 1958 to 1962 uh -huh. uh, in a border city, Baltimore, uh, where segregation uh, had been fairly deeply entrenched, but it was changing uh, in the very years that I was there. Uh, the years I was in graduate school were the years of um, uh, the desegregation uh, crisis in uh, Little Rock High School in, in 
uh, Little Rock, Arkansas. It was the years of the sit-ins in 1960, uh, starting in Greensboro, North Carolina, the Freedom Rides through the South. Uh, very soon after I finished graduate school and began teaching at Princeton, uh, the passage of the, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, I was living through all of that, and I was uh, uh, I was overwhelmed by the parallels uh, between the time in which I was living uh, and the events of exactly 100 years earlier in the 1860s, confrontation between the federal government and southern political leaders who were vowing massive resistance to national law. Uh, that was going on in the 1950s and 1960s. George Wallace was standing in the schoolhouse door and so mm-hmm. on. And, of course, it was uh, it was going on in the 1860s on a much more massive scale uh, in the Civil War. Um, so there was no ground for, for deep optimism. At last, the issues of the Civil War are being resolved through the freedom movement of the uh, 1950s and 60s. Well, there was a, certainly a sense that we were making progress and that maybe we would be able to resolve those issues. Uh, and certainly massive change did take place uh, in the 1960s and since the 1960s. Uh, but the question of whether we would ever enter a, a, a post-racial society, I don't think, as, as some people uh, said that when Barack Obama was elected president in 2008, we would be entering into a kind of post-racial society, that that was a landmark. Well, clearly, uh, that was over-optimistic. Um, and in the in the 1960s, there were uh, some people, uh, I think it may have included at times myself, who were optimistic that the ch- changes we saw taking place all around us would eventually bring an end to uh, injustice. Uh, but clearly, uh, in, in not only in American society, but in societies around the world, uh, injustices persist. And that so, was my optimistic uh orientation, though a far uh, more naive one than yours would have been. I was merely a graduate student in social psychology uh, and a young academic in that field at the time. But uh, the view from the socio-psychological perspective was so much has changed historically and attitudes have now so deeply been altered in the direction of uh, egalitarianism that uh, by the time I'm an old man, this will be a different nation. And it will undoubtedly have a black president and much more than that. Well, we did get the one African-American president, but uh, this very summer, I think there's more sense of grievance in sectors of the uh, African-American community uh, towards the rest of us now than there would have been even 10 years ago. Well, that's probably true, and in some ways it's a consequence of what used to be called the revolution of rising expectations. Yes, exactly. Uh, the, the, the Many changes have, have happened, and this is a much different country than it was 50 years ago. Now we've got a sort uh, of but, an undeclared war between the police and uh, civil rights activists. Yes, that's true. Uh, of course, that, that undeclared war has been going on for many decades. Uh, it's not That's absolutely not new. Um uh, but I think what happens is that when uh, when change and progress take place, it excites expectations for more change and more progress. And 
the the lack of the things that the, the injustices that still remain become less and less tolerant uh, uh, tolerable I should say and as a consequence you get this uh, sense of uh, uh, of despair uh, of anger uh, I think that's what's happening now uh, there has been a great deal of change but of course uh, there's still much more change needed. It's a question of whether the the uh, glass is half empty or half full. Uh, Fifty years ago, the glass was empty. Now it's half full, but of course it's still half empty. And I think that's uh, one of the things that uh, uh, is going on in society right now. Well, let a psychologist ask a great historian uh, a, psycholo- a psychological sort of question. Is this perhaps built in to the human repertoire? Uh, I don't mean merely Americans. I mean in uh, all societies where you have clear differences, visible differences uh, between uh, different groups of people, which are at the same time also coordinate with differences in their economic uh, advantage or disadvantage. Uh, Are all societies divided between those who uh, feel that they are uh, unjustifiably ill-treated and those who are defensive about that ill-treatment. I think it is built into all societies, and of course it, it's it's worse in some societies than in others. Uh, some societies uh, uh, have greater injustices than other societies, but I think all societies have this conflict uh, uh, built into them. Uh, I, I can't think of any uh, society around the world today where uh, there isn't uh, some degree of unrest and unhappiness. Uh, maybe, maybe some of the Scandinavian societies. I was about to say. To I was about to say Iceland. Yeah, maybe so. Where, after all, they only have four hundred thousand people, and uh, they're all of the same. They're all of the same family, virtually. Mm-hmm. Well, that may be an exception. Yes. Um, I, but of course, the war remains. The civil war remains um, a constant. Uh, high drama uh, and uh, tremendously uh, affecting story. You've told it in through many different aspects in this uh, book, and these were separate essays originally, now drawn together and reintegrated for this book. Uh, you, I just want to give some of the subtitles uh, or the titles of the particular chapters, and then we pause for some commercials, then let's go into some of these uh, questions and titles at least. Um, Mexico, California, and the coming of the Civil War. A just war? Question mark. Fascinating basic question. Death and destruction in the Civil War. Um, American navies and British neutrality during the Civil War. The rewards of risk-taking. Two Civil War admirals. That, to me, was a fascinating chapter. Um, I knew there was a Farragut who was important. I never knew what he had done. I learned a great deal about that. How did freedom come? That raises the question of whether uh, Abraham Lincoln gave freedom, or rather blacks took freedom. Um, and that examination is well worth uh, reconsidering right now in our conversation. Um, uh, Abraham Lincoln, or A. Lincoln, commander-in-chief, the commander who would not fight, McClellan and Lincoln, Lincoln's legacy for our time, time war and peace in the post-Civil War South. Those are the chapters. We'll go into some of them. I think I'd like to come directly to the question, how did freedom come? Directly back to James McPherson. 
after this. And directly back to James McPherson, drawing from, but we will not do full justice to, uh, this rich new book of his, The War That Forged a Nation, Why the Civil War Still Matters. That is, by the way, just published by Oxford University Press. As I said, let's focus for um, a bit on the question raised in one of the chapters, How Did Freedom Come? Uh, is there one hypothesis might be Lincoln had the, emancip- the Emancipation Proclamation in mind um, even when he was running for the presidency. Uh, but of course, he had to hold back for a while till the time was ripe. There were some who would who used to argue that. Uh, I don't think it's argued this that way anymore, is it? No, no, not at all. Uh, clearly, when the war began, uh, Lincoln insisted, and indeed this was official policy of uh, the, the United States government, that uh, the purpose of the war was to restore the Union that had existed before Southern secession. And of course, that was a Union with slavery, still as an essential part of uh, half of the country. Uh, the reason that the southern states had seceded and tried to form an independent nation was because they feared uh, that Lincoln's election uh, might ultimately mean an end of slavery, since his party wanted to exclude slavery from the new territories and the new states. Um, But uh, in order to try to reassure them that that was not the purpose of the war, Lincoln insisted that that, uh, the sole purpose of the war was to restore the Union, even though personally, as he said many times, uh, he considered slavery a social, moral, and political evil. As did many other members of his cabinet, as did one just thinks, for example, uh, lots of other important Americans, one of them being Horace Greeley, who from his newspaper in New York was constantly badgering Lincoln in the early years of the war about getting rid of slavery openly, totally, thoroughly, and now. Yes, and in fact, in a famous uh, editorial in August of 1860, <coughs> August of 1862, Lincoln, er, Greeley did insist that Lincoln should issue an Emancipation Proclamation of some sort, freeing the slaves, and Lincoln, in a famous reply, said, uh, 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 if I could save the Union by freeing none of the slaves, I would do that. If I could save the Union by freeing all of them, I would do that if I could free if I could save the union by freeing some and leaving others alone. I would do that, but in all cases, my purpose is to um, preserve the union and not necessarily to preserve or abolish slavery. Uh, now there was uh, some tactical <clears throat> purpose in in Lincoln's letter uh, because uh, at the time he wrote it in August of 1862, he had actually drafted an Emancipation Proclamation. Things had changed a lot by August of 1862 from uh, a year and a half earlier. But he was trying to uh, uh, reassure those people in the North who thought the war ought to be only about preserving the Union and that slavery, uh, the abolition of slavery, ought not to have any part in it, uh, that whatever he did about slavery, it was in order to preserve the Union. He was trying to, in a way, to prepare the way for the Emancipation Proclamation uh, that he knew would eventually come uh, by assuring those who opposed it or were skeptical of it uh, that his sole purpose was, even with emancipation, his sole purpose was to preserve the Union. But a lot of water had gone over the dam uh, by August of 1860, uh, 1862. You, you treat of a counter-hypothesis 
it isn't the denial of all that you've just reviewed, but you say the situation is much more complex than that. Uh, not only did Lincoln, quote, free the slaves through the Emancipation Proclamation, more broadly through the Emancipation Intention, which may have always been there, but not yet fully openly enunciated, but the slaves freed themselves. You say that the the rush toward Union lines of about a million uh, black uh, males uh, essentially undid slavery as an institution. Well, from the very first days of the war, uh, slaves started coming into Union lines, first in uh, uh, the border states and in the occupied portions of Virginia, yeah. uh, because they <clears throat> they saw the Civil War as a potential war for freedom uh, before anybody in the North saw it as a potential war for freedom. And uh, uh, three, uh, uh, three slaves came into Union lines at uh, Fort Monroe, Virginia, on the tip of the Virginia Peninsula in May of 1861, and uh, presented themselves to General, General Benjamin Butler, who uh, was the Union commander there. Uh, and um, Butler asked them, uh, well, you know, he, he, he uh, interviewed them, and they said they had been working on Confederate fortifications, uh, but they decided to flee to Union lines in the hope of achieving freedom. And so Butler came up with this idea that they were contraband of war. Uh, that is, they were enemy property uh, liable to uh, seizure and confiscation because they'd been used uh, in the war effort against the United States. And that idea of contraband of war, it was kind of a stroke of genius. Uh, it caught on. Uh, and uh, thereafter, during the entire war, slaves who came into Union lines and eventually, by doing so, achieved their freedom, uh, were called contrabands. Uh, and and uh, that became one of the uh, most uh, common terms uh, in the war. Uh, and that became the uh, the germ of the idea that, uh, that was embodied in the Emancipation Proclamation. Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation in his capacity as commander-in-chief of the armies and navies of the United States uh, with power to seize enemy property being used to wage war against the United States. Slaves, of course, were property. And slaves formed the principal labor force uh, that made the Confederate economy run. Uh, thousands and thousands of slaves uh, were with the Confederate armies uh, serving in a kind of logistical capacity. They were laborers for the Confederate Army. They were teamsters. They were blacksmiths. They were uh, uh, personal servants. They, uh, the the Confederate Army really traveled on on the uh, basis of, uh, of of slavery and operated on the basis of slavery. So clearly, there was a um, a, a legal basis uh, in in, uh, in military law for Lincoln to seize this enemy property being used to sustain the Confederate war effort. Uh, well, that started with Benjamin Butler's idea of the slaves being contraband of war, and uh, it was the slaves who, themselves who took the initiative in in making that, uh, that first step possible by coming into Union lines. And as the war went on, tens of thousands, uh, eventually hundreds of thousands of Union of, of, uh, of slaves came within Union lines, either by fleeing to Union lines or 
as Union armies invaded the Confederacy, they came, they came to the slaves. How many were drawn into the Union army itself? Well, uh, 180,000, uh, eventually 180,000 black soldiers yeah. fought in the Union army and another fifteen to 20,000 in the Union navy, and most of them were former slaves. So at least 150,000 of, of the black soldiers and sailors in the United States Army and Navy during the Civil War had been slaves at the beginning of the war. Was it the case that none of them had uh, uh, had uh, black commanding officers? No, they, they all had white officers. Yeah. Um, that, that, that remained uh, true till the end of the war. And that remained true not only to the end of the war, it remained true in World War One and My God. World War Two, and uh, right on down to uh, the Korean War. Yeah. It wasn't until the Korean War that uh, black soldiers were uh, integrated into the United States Army and that uh, that uh, a substantial number of blacks had the, had the opportunity to become officers. Well, one thinks of, in World War Two of the Tuskegee Airmen, for example, but they were still segregated. They yes, were, they were flying alone, as it were. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what a bloody, bloody war that was! Uh, there, there was that a fine film of some years ago. I forget its title about black soldiers who seem to have been slaughtered in a uh, an ultimate battle. Were their casualty rates higher than uh, the rates for the general army? No, the movie you're thinking of was Glory. Exactly. Uh, yes. 1989 and the attack on Fort Wagner, where the 54th Massachusetts, which was the first black regiment officially included mm-hmm. in the North, uh, did suffer heavy casualties. But in fact, uh, the, the, the 180,000 black soldiers in the Union Army actually suffered uh, fewer combat casualties proportionately than, than the white soldiers because so many of them were used uh, as uh, occupation troops, as labor battalion, as in, in fatigue capacities rather than combat capacities. I see. That, too, remained uh, true through World War II as well. Um, and, in fact, one of the, uh, one of the uh, purposes uh, or one of the goals of black soldiers and their white officers, who, uh, who were, in many cases, were abolitionists and strong proponents of uh, equal rights for, for blacks, one of the purposes was to gain a combat role for them because uh, rather than the labor and, and occupation duties that they were originally assigned to because uh, that's a sort of second-class military uh, uh, capacity, uh, serving as fatigue troops, combat as, as uh, labor battalions, and so on. And they wanted the opportunity to fight, to, to prove the uh, manhood of the Negro race, as they would have put it, uh, and to uh, uh, help win the war and to help achieve freedom. And eventually they got their opportunity, but throughout the war as a whole, uh, black troops had less opportunity for, uh, for combat roles than, than, than white troops. And so they, they suffered a higher rate of disease mortality uh, than white soldiers, but a lower rate of combat mortality. We come inevitably to the ultimate question, how was the war won, or might it have gone otherwise? And we remember the British commander at Waterloo says of the defeat of Napoleon, quote, it was a damned close-run thing, meaning it just might have worked out the opposite way, but for some fortunate circumstances. Can that be said of the Civil War itself? Absolutely. Uh, It was certainly a close-run thing. 
uh, and the Confederates had uh, a number of different opportunities to win it and came close to doing so on several occasions. Uh, one thing you have to remember, though, is that winning the war for the Confederacy was uh, something quite different than winning the war for the Union. All the Confederacy had to do in order to win the war was to uh, not lose it, uh, to um, uh, maintain the uh, uh, the political and military uh, control of the territory that they claimed to control, the 11 states that formed the Confederate States of America. Uh, to win the War of the Union had to invade, uh, conquer, occupy, uh, destroy the Confederacy's capacity to wage war, a much uh, uh, more demanding task, a much more uh, difficult task than than the Confederacy's. And so the Confederacy came close to winning the war on, on those grounds on several occasions by just wearing out the will of the northern people to continue making the sacrifices necessary. Well, what are some of the crucial uh, points of history where that was evident? Or where well, that was possible? Uh, uh, certainly the fall of 1862 is one occasion when um, the Confederates had won uh, uh, several major battles in the summer of 1862. Uh, the anti-war faction in the Northern Democratic Party was claiming that the mm. war was a failure, that there should be some kind of peace negotiations. Congressional elections were coming up in the North in the fall of 1862. Uh, and this peace movement was gaining strength because of the uh, failures of Union arms. Uh, Lee had actually, uh, the two Confederate armies were invading the border states. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia was invading Maryland, and Braxton Bragg's Army of Tennessee was invading Kentucky, two Union uh, border slave states that the Confederates hoped to, uh, to uh, win over to their side. Uh, and if those two invasions had uh, succeeded in, in winning uh, yet another Confederate military victory, I think that um, it, it might have forced the Lincoln administration, very much against its will, to be sure, uh, but might have forced the Lincoln administration to um, negotiate some kind of a, a settlement with the Confederacy, because the Northern people might have not uh, continued to support the war. But Union victories at the Battle of Antietam, uh, and then a couple of weeks later in Kentucky at the Battle of Perryville, but especially Antietam, uh, uh, revived Northern morale uh, and gave them the uh, the will to continue the war. But still, it went badly in the spring of eighteen, the winter and spring of eighteen sixty-three. And again, the Confederates seemed to uh, have a chance to win the war on the basis of uh, the Northern people just. Uh, not willing to continue to make these sacrifices, the rise of uh, an even greater strength of the anti-war faction in the Northern Democratic Party. But then came the twin victories of Gettysburg and, and the capture of Vicksburg, which were major Northern victories, and that constituted a, a yet another uh, huge turning point that revived Northern morale. And you would have to add, wouldn't you, Sherman's devastation of a good portion of the South. Well, that happened a year later. Yes. That was yet another turning point in the fall of 1864 after, again, uh, in the summer of 1864, uh, Northern armies uh, were suffering heavy casualties, apparently not making much progress. 
but then came Sherman's capture of Atlanta and Sherman's march through Georgia. I think that was the final turning point yeah. toward Northern victory. But uh, on, on those three occasions, the late summer of 1862, the early summer of 1863, the late summer of 1864, it looked like the Confederacy might be able to win in the same way that the Americans uh, uh, won their independence in the War of the Well, we'll, we'll come directly back to that. I should tell you, um, as a former staff member for just a brief time at the Naval War College, I'm particularly interested in the naval side of the Civil War, and you've got a wonderful chapter on that. We return directly to James McPherson after this, and we return directly to James McPherson. And James, I'm going to uh, uh, arrogate to myself the privilege of reading one paragraph uh, from your book. Um, It's in the chapter titled, Death and Destruction in the Civil War. Uh, Quote, The Civil War mobilized human and economic resources in the Confederacy and the Union on a scale unmatched by any other event in American history except perhaps World War II. For actual combat duty, the War of 1861-65 mustered a larger proportion of American manpower than that of 1941-45. And in another comparison with that global conflagration, the victorious power in the Civil War did all it could to devastate the enemy's economy as well as the morale of its home front population. The Civil War wiped out two-thirds of the assessed value of wealth in Confederate states, two-fifths of the South's livestock, and more than half of its farm machinery, not to mention at least one quarter of the Confederacy's white men of military age. While Northern wealth increased by 50% from 1860 to 1870, Southern wealth decreased by 60%. It does sound as if those who are still somehow enraged in the South, members of, among other things, the so-called League of the South, are still embittered at what quote, we did to them. Well, uh, the war was immensely destructive. There's no question about that. And uh, the the closest, I think, uh, to its destructiveness in terms of comparison is World War II. Uh, If if the Southerners uh, had reasons for embitterment, uh, so did the Germans and the Japanese, who suffered equally or even greater because of the uh, impact of the bombing. But this civil war was, in a way, um, uh, equal to World War II in its readiness to injure and kill civilians. Are you... Not, uh, not, sir- not to injure and, convil- and, and kill civilians. Actually, the, uh, the, the uh, civilian casualty rate as a consequence of military operations in the civil war was really quite small. I see. Uh, compared to World War II, where, of course, uh, the majority of the uh, victims of the war in uh, Europe and Japan uh, were actually civilians. Well, when I mentioned earlier uh, Sherman's march to the sea, isn't that the basic complaint, that he ruined uh, the society um, uh, all around him, 50 miles in either direction, uh, from Atlanta to the coast and then up into the Carolinas? Right. He destroyed an enormous amount of property, but not very much in the way of civilian lives. That's mm-hmm. the big contrast between the Civil War and World War II. Uh, it is it's not, it's not so much in terms of property destruction, 
because the Civil War did destroy an enormous amount of property. Uh, but in terms of uh, the lives of civilians, the Civil War, through direct military uh, activities, uh, had very few civilian casualties. Who are the authors of the victory? Um, does one, uh, again, the playing counterfactuals, if Grant hadn't been there, if he had been killed in uh, the invasion of Mexico or what have you, or if uh, Sherman never got off the boat or what have you, is it con- or that was Sheridan, I guess. Uh, is it conceivable, you said it is conceivable that the North might have lost. Uh, who is the? Who are the crucial figures in the engineering of the victory? Or should I indeed mention Abraham Lincoln as uh, the ultimate uh, uh, strategist? Well, certainly uh, Lincoln, I think, deserves uh, uh, pride of place uh, as the most important single individual in designing and leading a northern victory in the war. Uh, the, the big four, I guess, of uh, Union military commanders would be Grant, Sherman, Sheridan, and George Thomas, who, by the way, was a Virginian who remained loyal yes. to the United States. Um, but I think uh, to uh, to quote a um, to quote a military analyst uh, 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 talking about uh, the way in which wars are won, uh, he he said that uh, amateurs study strategy. Professional study logistics, uh, and I become increasingly convinced uh, the more I read about the Civil War that the ultimate reason for Northern victory in the war was the organization and administration of its its war economy, uh, its logistics, uh, the war production of, of Northern factories and farms, the ability of the uh, railroads and the, the shipping uh, the, 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 uh, by water of river steamboats and coastal uh, shipping uh, to sustain the logistical effort of the northern armies operating over a front of more than a thousand miles from uh, Virginia to Texas. Um, it was an enormous uh, uh, task and the northern economy and the administration of the war effort, uh, Secretary of War Edwin M. Stanton, uh, for example, uh, the uh, heads of the northern military railroads, Daniel McCallum and, uh, and others, uh, or, they, they really organized victory, I think. And while Lincoln, of course, as commander-in-chief and Grant and the other generals as the commanders of the armies were uh, enormously... Uh, important too, and uh, of course uh, indispensable. Uh, in the long run, I think the uh, the real reason for Northern victory was its ability to, uh, as as the as as was the case, I think, with the United States in World War II, its ability to outproduce the enemy uh, and uh, it, its logistical supremacy uh, over the Confederacy. Do we have evidence that? The war was, we, we know that war is a very complex matter and some men run away and some are very cynical about any justification given for war, but that many are caught up in patriotism or in fervor or in the sheer opportunity to at last let go of uh, a deep and, uh, and uh, lasting reserve of uh, sheer aggression. Do we have any sense of uh, what morale in North and South was like, and to what degree the soldiers were animated and ready to kill. 
rather than really just wanting to get through the scrape and get away? Well, I think that the ideological um, uh, fervor of Civil War soldiers, the ideological motivation was probably stronger in the case of the Civil War than it has been in most of the other wars the United States has fought. Maybe the revolution would be comparable. And the reason for that was that both sides in the Civil War uh, were convinced that the very survival uh, of their, not only their nation, but their societies was at stake in the war. That's obvious in the case of the Confederacy. Uh, they lose the war, they lose their, lose their nation, they lose, of course, slavery as the basis of uh, their society. But isn't it, tr- isn't it true that the average Confederate soldier uh, held no slaves? Well, uh, a surprisingly large percentage of Confederate soldiers, not a majority, but a very large minority of Confederate soldiers, belonged to slaveholding households. Uh, yeah. Uh, they may not have owned slaves themselves because they were 18, 21, 23 years old. Uh, they were too young yet to have acquired property, but they belonged to slaveholding families or slaveholding households. Um, Joe Gladhar, historian who teaches at the University of North Carolina, has done a study of Confederate armies, especially the Army of Northern Virginia. He has found that, uh, found that uh, 40% Uh, The soldiers in the Army of Northern Virginia belonged to slaveholding households. And so uh, slavery, and and, um, among the 60% who did not hold slaves, they had a stake uh, in a a, a social order that upheld white supremacy. Uh, That is, their own supremacy. Uh, And many of them, of course, aspired to become slaveholders. So they also had that economic stake in, in slavery. So while it is quite true that a majority of uh, Confederate soldiers did not belong to slaveholding households, nevertheless, uh, 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 they did, most of them uh, uh, felt, they did feel that they had a stake in in uh, preserving slavery as, as a part of what they would have called uh, the Southern way of life, or to use a phrase that uh, frequently crops up in, in their uh, diaries and letters, uh, Southern institutions, our institutions, uh, by which they meant, of course, primarily slavery. One interesting sidelight I gleaned from this wonderful new book of yours, uh, something I had never thought through and just really didn't know, is that some of the rather incompetent uh, generals uh, on the Union side were political appointments, but they were, many of them, chosen um, for their ethnic background as a way of mobilizing and uh, engaging uh, the passions of ethnic minorities who had been coming into the country in recent years, that to build a Union army, you needed to put some Irish generals up front who may not have been all that good in terms of military skills. Uh, I don't know what other ethnicities or other nationalities were so involved, but apparently uh, that was true across a broad range. Well, yes, uh, the, the, the very heavy immigration to the United States in the 1840s and 1850s, and most of the immigrants went to the free states, went to the north. And the two largest immigrant groups were the Germans and the Irish. Yeah. Uh, and and um, in order to mobilize them for the war effort uh, and to encourage them to volunteer to serve in the Union Army, uh, the, Lincoln appointed quite a few prominent leaders of these two communities, the Germans and the Irish, 
also some Scandinavians, but it was mostly the Germans and the Irish, uh, to prominent military positions, even though they did not have uh, military training or experience. And the same was true uh, not only for ethnic generals, but also prominent politicians who uh, would be able to uh, help to mobilize their their constituencies in states from uh, Massachusetts to to Iowa uh, to support the war effort. Were there any ethnic generals who worked out well, or did most of them sort of flub the job? Well, um, Karl Schurz, uh, who was a very prominent German uh, 48er, had escaped from Germany yeah. after the failed revolution in Prussia there in 1848. Uh, I wouldn't say he was an outstanding general, but he did a pretty good job. Uh, and there were some other, Franz Siegel, who was usually criticized as being another German-American, uh, as, as being kind of a bumbling uh, failure. Uh, he did have his good moments as well. His, his, uh, so there are a couple of examples there. Uh, among the Irish, Thomas Mahar, the commander of the famous uh, Irish Brigade, uh, may not have been a military genius, but he was quite successful at... Uh, motivating uh, the uh, the Irish-American soldiers in that brigade uh, to um, be uh, famous, uh, famous fighters. You know, I can't resist asking you about my own folks. Um, we did not yet have a great Jewish migration to this country till the second half of the 19th century, but we do remember that uh, Judah Benjamin was a cabinet member uh, on the Confederate side. I believe he was Secretary of the Treasury, well, he actually held three different cabinet positions. Yeah. Uh, he was attorney general for a few months. He was uh, secretary of war for about six months. But then for the rest of the war, he was actually secretary of state. Ah. Uh, yeah. So he held the leading position in the cabinet, although uh, he... Not treasury at all. I got that wrong. Not treasury, no. Yeah. Um, but he, he because uh, the Confederacy was not recognized by any foreign government uh, and therefore did not have... Uh, ambassadors uh, in foreign countries. Uh, Benjamin didn't have all that much to do as Secretary of State, so he became very prominent as a kind of close advisor uh, of Jefferson Davis in uh, political and military. And he winds up after the war in England, where he... Uh... That's right, and he becomes a prominent uh, barrister. Yes. yes. But, but what, about Jew- what about Jewish generals in the field? Were there any? Uh, there were a few. Um, Marcus, Marcus Spiegel from Ohio... Uh, became fairly prominent. He started out as uh, commander of the, um, I think, the 120th Ohio Volunteer Infantry, and he ended up uh, as a brigadier general. And uh, uh, but but he was then killed in action in Louisiana in 1864. Uh, there were um, there was an Edward Salomon from from Wisconsin, who was actually a member of a fairly prominent family there. His brother was the governor of the state for a while. Uh, and he he became um, not a prominent general, but uh, a prominent military commander. But um, he played a, an important role, and there were some others as well. But as you say, most of the Jewish immigration to the United States came later in the 19th century and in the early 20th century. So there was a relatively small Jewish population yeah. in the United States in, in the era of the Civil War. But there were estimated to be something in the neighborhood of eight or ten thousand. Uh, Union soldiers of, of uh, Jewish yeah. background. What I want to come to, as we will uh, right after we pause for some commercials, um, is uh, the naval side of the war, uh, which uh, you write about and which I did not know as much 
about as I should have. And we'll talk about that with James McPherson right after this. And directly back to James McPherson, I can't resist making the quick uh, reference to um, the first of our great war historians, Thucydides. You might say Herodotus was as good an historian, but I think for historians, Thucydides uh, counts as um, more truly insightful and a far better researcher. And he, of course, was uh, a naval man. In fact, the reason he was doing, he did the book on the Peloponnesian War is that he had lost a few naval battles and was stripped of his command. But um, I mentioned that only as we turn to the Union Navy and, for that matter, to the Confederate Navy, uh, and most particularly to Admiral Farragut. Well, I, uh, I think that the um, naval uh, uh, aspect of the Civil War has been uh, uh, underestimated, underwritten about. Uh, it was an, a, a crucial part of the war effort, especially on the Union side. Uh, and it was in the navies that the Union superiority uh, manifested itself most clearly. Uh, the Confederate Navy was uh, tiny. Uh, it could not match the Union Navy on, uh, uh, on, uh, uh, in, in numbers or in quality, although it made a real effort through technological innovation, uh, the building of the first uh, successful ironclad, uh, the USS Virginia, uh, based on the hull of the Merrimack, uh, pre-war wooden frigate that the Confederates captured when they captured the Norfolk Navy Yard. Um, but in the end, they could not match the uh, the numbers, the uh, firepower uh, of, of the Union Navy. And it was uh, in naval superiority, I think, that uh, uh, that was a key factor in ultimate uh, Union victory. I talked a few minutes ago about northern logistical capacity being a major factor. I think uh, the other uh, major factor uh, in ultimate northern victory was the Navy. Uh, not only... Um, uh, in its main task of maintaining a blockade of Confederate ports, which became increasingly effective during the course of the war and uh, played a major uh, role in, in um, squeezing the Confederate economy. And you seem to suggest that that dissuaded the British from lending some aid to the Confederacy. Yes, that's quite true. Um, although uh, uh, conflict between the Union Navy and and, uh, and British uh, also at times during the course of the war uh, threatened to uh, to bring the British into the war. So it, it, it had uh, both tendencies during the course of the war. But the British respected uh, the uh, Union blockade of Confederate ports because, of course, uh, the naval weapon was important to Britain in its wars, and they didn't want to uh, create a precedent that could be used against them in a future war by um, uh, trying to uh, violate the Union blockade or to claim that it was illegal. Uh, but another area where the Union Navy was crucial, and here is where Farragut uh, comes into his own, uh, was that it was a powerful offensive striking weapon, uh, capturing Confederate ports, but even more important, uh, penetrating the navigable rivers uh, in the heartland of the Confederacy, not only the Mississippi River, but the Tennessee River and the Cumberland River. It's particularly important, is it not, in uh, the capture of Vicksburg? Yes, it was. Uh, Vicksburg, uh, New Orleans, um, eventually Wilmington, uh, uh, North Carolina, uh, Memphis, uh, Nashville. Um, 
uh, th- those are uh, important Confederate cities uh, and and industrial and uh, transportation centers uh, that were captured either primarily by the Union Navy or by combined operations of the Union Army and Navy, which was the case uh, with Vicksburg. Uh, without the Navy, and especially the River Navy, uh, but also the Blue Water Navy, which uh, under Farragut penetrated all the way up the Mississippi River after capturing New Orleans in the spring of 1862, all the way up to Vicksburg. Um, so uh, w- without without the role of the Navy, I don't think that the... Uh, I, I wouldn't say that the Navy won the war for the Union, uh, but without the, 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 the key role played by the Navy... Victory might not have been possible, and uh, certainly would have been uh, much more difficult and delayed. Uh, uh, Three years ago, I I did a book on the naval war called War on the Waters, uh, the Union and Confederate Navies, and the two essays in the book we're talking about today are derived from my research for for that book. And I became convinced, uh, as a consequence of that, uh, doing the research for that book, that uh, the Navy uh, really deserves, uh, uh, especially the Union Navy, really deserves uh, uh, to be given the credit for uh, Northern victory. Confederate Navy has a kind of um, romantic aura to it. Uh, the Commerce Raiders, uh, the CSS Alabama, the Florida, uh, uh, the Shenandoah, uh, they roamed uh, almost the seven seas. Uh, the uh, the CSS Shenandoah made it as far as the Bering Sea uh, to attack uh, American whaling ships in the last year of the war. Uh, they roamed over the the, the seven seas, um, uh, capturing and destroying Union uh, merchant ships. Uh, they played the same role, not as lethal a role in human lives, but uh, the same role as uh, submarines did uh, in World War One and World War Two as uh, trying to destroy uh, Union shipping. Uh, they actually uh, captured and, and destroyed some 250 uh, uh, American merchant ships during the course of the war and basically drew, drove the American uh, merchant marine from the seas. Uh, um, and caused many uh, American sh- uh, ships to change their registry to other nations. But in the end, that did not have uh, a significant impact on the outcome of the war in the same way that the Union Navy, by maintaining the blockade of Confederate ports and then penetrating deep into the heartland of the Confederacy on navigable rivers, played an ultimate Union victory. I amaze myself, and maybe I am even critical of myself, in that we've uh, I've asked you very little about Abraham Lincoln. Um, you do have one chapter titled A. Lincoln, Commander-in-Chief, in that you do talk about um, his own role as a war strategist. But more broadly, uh, Lincoln, as a man, as well as a commander, as well as the central figure in the Civil War, um, how do you relate to Lincoln after all these years of close study and thought about the war? Well, Lincoln is a, is a fascinating character. There are so many layers to him. Yes. Uh, and you think you have come to understand some aspects of Lincoln, and then you discover yet a deeper layer to him. And that's why I think there are so many books about Lincoln, so many biographies, so many studies of Lincoln, 
uh, he's he's uh, not only important but as a personality, as a uh, as a thinker, as a writer, um, as a leader, and in the case of the essay that you just mentioned, as commander in chief. Yeah. Uh, there are just uh, so, so much depth to him that uh, it's, it, you can you can write about it, you can continue to write about him and, and find new things or find new angles to try to understand old things. I've discovered a a fine Lincoln scholar. In fact, I met him in the White House. Uh, he and I were uh, two of uh, the six or seven people who were getting uh, that year's uh, awards from the uh, National Endowment for the Humanities. And it's Harold Holzer I'm talking about. Oh, he's a good friend of mine, and you're right. He's an absolutely splendid Lincoln scholar. He's probably done about 30 books on Lincoln alone. Yeah, I think he knows more about Lincoln than any other living person. I really do. While helping to run the museum, uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Well, he's just retired. I I heard that he was going to, yeah. Uh, Now he'll be able to write even more books about Lincoln, because... (laughs) Basically, uh, his all of his scholarship on Lincoln was uh, an avocation, not I know. avocation. His daytime I, job was uh, at the Metropolitan Museum. I know. Now he'll be able to come out with a book a year instead of a book every other year. You He's are amazing consi- character. You are considered the dean, the present dean of Civil War historians. Um, who, which other ones were formative uh, for you? Obviously, Van Woodward was one. Well, Van Woodward was was a very formative influence on me, but uh, somebody who really influenced me is somebody I never knew personally, uh, and that was Alan Nevins, uh-huh. uh, who um, uh, taught at Columbia University for many decades, uh, ended up his career as a fellow at the Huntington Library in, in California, died in the 1970s. But his uh, major work, I mean, he was enormously prolific. He wrote... Uh, Books about almost every conceivable subject in American history—it's amazing. But his, his one of his his magnum opus, I think, were eight volumes on the four volumes on the coming of the Civil War, called the Ordeal of the Union, uh, and then four volumes on the war itself, called the War for the Union. Um, the, the the last of the eight volumes was published uh, posthumously after he died in, in 1971, I believe. But those are. Uh, um, enormously important books, I think, and they've certainly helped to shape my understanding of the Civil War and, and the example of uh, research and writing uh, was a, was an important uh, influence on me. The most distressing thing I know about contemporary college life uh, is something I was uh, telling just the other day um, on the air. Uh, when I give, or used to give, a little cultural literacy uh, test um, based on E.D. Hirsch's kind of work uh, to uh, my own students at the University of Chicago. Uh, we give it on the last day of class for my largest class. Um, one of the items I routinely used were what are the dates of the American Civil War? And not one out of ten students could put in 1861 to 1865 or if you get it into the right decade. Uh, I know it's uh, it's uh, it's discouraging, isn't it? The, the uh, illiterate well, historical illiteracy of so many Americans. What do you make of that? And how uh, did it come to be? I, I guess it's the. I mean, the usual answer to that question uh, is that history is uh, seen as a boring subject because of the way it's taught. 
huh. in elementary schools and, and uh, high schools. Uh, it's, it's, if so, that that is a that's a, a sad commentary because uh, history should be uh, exciting and, and interesting and. Uh, and in the way that uh, it's, it's some people write about it, uh, uh, Ken Burns uh, presents uh, television documentaries on important historical subjects. It, it, can, it, it should be fascinating and absorbing. But intrinsically, it is. Yeah, well, it is, yeah. Yes. But somehow the, the students... I, I tell you, though, um, maybe it's because young people don't have any real sense of history. Uh, I, I think as we get older... And we have more history of ourselves. Um, uh-huh. More, more of our life is in the past. Uh, we become more sensitive in, in, to history and more uh, willing, to, more, yeah. more interested in it. So the typical fifteen-year-old uh, or eighteen-year-old uh, is oriented toward the present and the future, and not the past. And I think they just yeah. somehow they don't. It doesn't. It doesn't. Um, it, it doesn't. They don't catch it. They catch on to it. Yeah. They, they don't. That's really... a very well taken point. Um, let me say to our listeners: we're opening the phone lines and, of course, the email. Uh, if you want to phone uh, to pose a question or a thought, eight four seven four seven five one five nine zero eight four seven four seventy five fifteen ninety, and to reach us by email, which is what people seem to prefer to do. Though we're happy always to receive telephone calls. The email address, milt, M-I-L-T, 50, uh, at 1590wcgo.com. Milt at 1590wcgo.com. Get your calls and emails uh, in instantly, and we shall return directly after this. And we return to James McPherson. The book that we've been drawing from um, are you uh, is titled The War That Forged a Nation, Why the Civil War Still Matters. Are you aware of just what number in your total list of volumes that is? Uh, I guess it's around probably number 18 or 19, somewhere in there. I'm not quite sure. Um, Well, just have you ever done a book that doesn't touch upon the Civil War? Uh, No. I thought not. Well, uh, I did a book called The Abolitionist Legacy, which uh, focused on the period from uh, 1870 to 19. So, but uh, the, it was really about the uh, role of old abolitionists and their children in uh, trying to sustain the accomplishments of the Civil sure. War and reconstruction down to the founding of the NAACP. So even that had an indirect Oh, well, of course, it has considerable uh, connection. Um, some emails. Um, I'm enjoying your conversation with James McPherson, and I'm fascinated to think of how far we've come in regards to racial tension in this nation, but I'm saddened to consider how much further we may have to go. We've so often looked for political and governmental solutions to the so-called race problem. Perhaps there is no chance at all that these institutions can offer us much more relief. Maybe government can only go so far. As has been said, quote, you can't legislate morals. Maybe this is a human problem, that has no solution. Um, well, I'm not quite that pessimistic. Uh, I don't think that it's a problem that has no solution. 
uh, maybe it doesn't have uh, a 100% solution. That, that is, we'll never achieve perfection. Um, but I, I, I think that it's uh, uh, that progress in, in race relations and in other kinds of uh, questions concerning social justice and, and economic justice can be made both by government, uh, governmental institutions, and uh, by individuals of goodwill working through um, uh, cultural institutions uh, of one, si uh, one, one sort or another. So uh, while I, I agree that, uh, to use the metaphor I did a little while ago, the glass is still half empty, um, and, and uh, I think that we can continue to work to try to fill it up. We may never fill it to the top. Uh, I don't think that probably perfection is, uh, or total, total success is possible. But I think both government and non-governmental institutions can continue to play a role. Did, did you have any expectation or hope or something in between that uh, inducting our first uh, African-American president would somehow be a something like a great leap forward, or at least a considerable bound forward, that it would have some difference in altering uh, the American reality? Well, I was very optimistic when Obama was elected, and I remember watching uh, in uh, the, the the celebration in Grant Park there in Chicago. Yes. Uh, the evening he was elected, and and having a feeling of enormous uh, that, that this was an enormous step forward. Um, and in in a way, I, I still think that it was a, a, a it would have been inconceivable, uh, and and hardly anybody could have anticipated it. Let's say ten or fifteen years ago. 20 years ago. Um, and so it is It is certainly a milestone in American history. Uh, it, it hasn't led to uh, a, a nirvana of, um, of uh, racial um, uh, justice and, and, uh, and, and equality. Uh, and maybe some people thought that it would make giant strides toward that and, and, and they're disappointed as a consequence. I think that is true for some considerable portion of the black community itself, that uh, his election somehow raised expectations and uh, they have not been fully met. Perhaps they, in some ways, they've been significantly disappointed. I, I think that's true, but uh, it, it's, still, it's still a milestone. Uh, no question about that. Uh, it no longer will uh, having a black president be uh, unprecedented because we now have a precedent, uh, and uh, and I think that's something that that's that, that's really important. Uh, it, it may not uh, led to the to to the utopia that some people hope for, but certainly it's nevertheless important. And I think you know since this is since we're talking about the Civil War, I think the Civil War. Uh, and the, the experience of the abolition of slavery in the Civil War and the passage of the 14th and 15th Amendments, which embedded racial equality in the Constitution, even if not necessarily in, in the real world, um, they were enormous leaps forward. They were milestones that turned out to have disappointing consequences, but nevertheless, uh, what, what came after was better than what had gone before. Uh, and and I think that's that's likely to be the way in which Obama's election and his presidency 
is evaluated in the future, even though we may be going through some rough patches right now, just as the Civil War experience went through, through some rough patches, patches uh, after the end of Reconstruction and the failure of Reconstruction in the 1870s and 80s. Nevertheless, uh, it still was a milestone accomplishment, just as Obama's election has been. Uh, we will go to the phones directly after we take care of some quick commercials. Then we'll go to Joel, who's waiting for us after this. And let's take a phone call from Joel. Uh, good afternoon, sir. Hello, Joel. Are you there? Yes, I am, Dr. Rosenberg. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Please go ahead. Hi. Uh, I want to say what an honor it is to speak with both of you. I, Mr. McPherson, I've read a ton of your books and always enjoyed them. Uh, I wanted to propose, and I know Dr. Rosenberg, it's one of your favorite things. Is a one of mine is a counterfactual. Yes. And uh, every time I I watch, I love to watch Ken Burns' Civil War series, which you brought up a little bit ago. I always wonder what would have, what, what do you think would have happened if Lincoln had not won election to a second term? No, oh, that's very interesting. Well, uh, the um, Democratic platform in 1864. Uh, called for a ceasefire and the negotiations uh, to bring the war to an end. Uh, now, General McClellan, who was nominated as the Democratic candidate to run against Lincoln, uh, said that only on the grounds of negotiating a restoration of the Union would he, as president, uh, enter into uh, negotiations. But if he had been elected, it would have been widely interpreted as a repudiation of Lincoln's policy of restoring the Union by military victory. And I don't think that McClellan, as a new president, could have resisted the pressure from what would have been his own party uh, to uh, to uh, uh, declare a ceasefire or, or agree to a ceasefire and to go to the negotiating table. And the Confederacy would have had all the advantages at such a negotiating table because uh, it would have been, uh, uh, they would have been brought to the negotiating table by an election which repudiated the very basis uh, on which Lincoln was trying to restore the Union. So my guess is that uh, that if uh, McClellan had been elected, there would have been a ceasefire, there would have been uh, negotiations in which uh, uh, there probably would not have been an agreement uh, but it would have been impossible to uh, to, rest, for, to restart the war, and the Confederacy would have achieved its independence, and slavery, of course, would have would have survived for a while. Um, that's that's my feeling about what would have happened. Okay. Also, if I could quickly follow up, so do you think that uh, if Sherman had not uh, taken Atlanta, that Lincoln still would have won the second term? I think uh, Sherman's capture of Atlanta was a game changer. Um, the Confederate, the uh, Democrats were running on a platform that said the war is a failure, uh, but the capture of Atlanta seemed to uh, uh, contradict that, and it was followed by other Union military victories in the Shenandoah Valley in September and October of 1864. Um, and combined with the capture of Atlanta, it was clearly a, a game changer. Lincoln himself uh, was convinced he would lose, uh, but that changed with the capture of Atlanta, and 
instead of being a failed commander-in-chief and therefore um, defeated at the polls, uh, he was a victorious commander-in-chief and, and won the election fairly decisively. And uh, without, without that, I think he would have lost. No Our thanks to if the, the election had been held on September 1st rather than November 8th, uh, September 1st being the, the day before Atlanta fell, uh, I think Lincoln would have lost. No question about it. And with that, our thanks to the caller. And let's go quickly back to some email. Here's a very simple one. Um, please ask the professor who his favorite characters of the war were. I think you must first exclude Lincoln. So apart from Lincoln, who is your favorite character in the war? Well, I think Grant. Uh, uh-huh. Grant, Grant, uh, Grant's reputation has experienced a, a great revival in the last 10, 12 years. There have been uh, two or three major biographies that uh, have uh, uh, pointed out his uh, strategic and uh, uh, other high qualities. Uh, there are at least two more major biographies in the works that are going to come out in the next couple, three years. Um, and I think he's now getting the recognition that uh, he had in his own time uh, but that was eclipsed in the decades after his death and in the early part of the 20th century when he was uh, uh, regarded as uh, uh, just a, a hammering general who won because of his greater numbers and resources rather than a skilled uh, strategist and, and tactician. Uh, and as a failed president, I think even his presidency is, is, has undergone uh, uh, a, a positive revision. Uh, it wasn't a, it wasn't an outstanding presidency, but it wasn't the abject failure that uh, some previous generations of historians portrayed. And do do you agree as well with many um, literary people and others who say that uh, his memoir, his history, autobiography, if you will, uh, is really a a great American book? It is. It's it's one of the great uh, uh, military memoirs in history and one of the great American books that Mark Twain uh, said it was at the time, and he was right. And I think that his memoirs have also uh, uh, achieved great uh, a great reputation uh, as people have uh, reread them. Um, uh, and uh, so, and Grant, uh, Grant is a, like Lincoln, there are, there are several layers to Grant. He, yeah. he wasn't a simple-minded uh, person, the way uh, Henry Adams uh, uh, evaluated in his own time. Henry Adams with his supercilious yes, well, uh, looking down his nose. By that generation, people. all Adamses were snobs. Yes, that's right. Yes. Um, another email. Could the South have done better than Lee as its commander? Or was it just that they could not uh, ultimately compete because of lesser resources and manufacturing capabilities? I ask because it seems that Lee is generally considered a master technician, despite some pretty serious gaffes, beginning with Gettysburg. Well, uh, I agree with that. Uh, Lee was a, a, a superb tactician, but Gettysburg was not his finest moment, quite the contrary. What did he do wrong no, I, there? I'm sorry? What did he do wrong at Gettysburg? Well, he, he was overconfident. Uh, he underestimated the enemy, and he overestimated the uh, power of his own army. Uh, he made the mistake, which um, is, is sometimes a fatal mistake, uh, and 
at least as far as Gettysburg tactically was concerned, it was a fatal mistake of of underestimating the enemy, uh, and and therefore um, uh, ordering some uh, attacks that uh, would turn out to be disastrous to his own army. Um, but in the in the context of four years of war, I don't think that uh, the Confederacy had anybody better than Lincoln. I'm mean, sorry, than Lee. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, he he um, he he was a, a very fine tactician. Uh, his his operational skills uh, were outstanding. Uh, maybe the the best uh, of any Civil War general, even better than Grant. Uh, where he was uh, maybe deficient was in his uh, somewhat narrow uh, strategic focus on Virginia, uh, rather than on the whole. Uh, the whole theater of war, and that that meant that strategically he fell short of Grant, I think, and Grant's conception, and, and Lincoln certainly, conception of having to press the war on several fronts simultaneously. Uh, Lee's um, uh, skills were pretty much confined to the Virginia theater, which was the most important theater, no question about that, uh, but there were many other theaters uh, in the war, in, in the in the war, uh, where the Confederacy was not doing nearly so well now. And and actually, on one occasion, uh, Jefferson Davis asked Lee to go to Georgia to take command of the Confederate Army of Tennessee, which was floundering and, and losing. Uh, but Lee uh, resisted that uh, and uh, remained with the Army of Northern Virginia. And that is just uh, one sign of his rather narrow focus on Virginia. But nevertheless, I don't think the Confederacy had anybody better than him. No, nobody at all. Oh, one more email, at least. Um, please ask, ask Mr. McPherson if he is confident in the current level of instruction at university history departments. My daughter is enrolled at a major state university, and when we were looking at history classes for this coming semester, I noticed that there were little to no offerings on the World Wars or on the Civil War, but plenty on the histories of race and gender. I know these are important and should be studied, um, but is the direction of study coordinated by the dean of a university, or is it simply a reflection of the interests of the faculty? Uh, well, you, the, the, the uh, author of that email asks a huge question. Yes, he uh, does. I don't, think I, can, I don't think I can probably cover it in the time we have remaining, but uh, I'll just uh, focus on uh, one or two parts of it. Uh, it, it's quite true that military history is not a popular subject in academic circles. Uh, and much of our best military history is not produced by academic historians. It's produced by uh, journalists or independent historians. And the focus of academic history is much more on social history, uh, race and gender and class and so on. Uh, and there's a disjunction between what's popular with the public, which is military and political history, uh, and uh, what is seen as uh, professionally the cutting edge of historical scholarship, uh, which is uh, basically social history. It's partly the French plot, the Annal. Yes, that, yes. The part of that comes out of the Annal school. Right. And, uh, no, no question about it, but there is this kind of disjunction between what's popular among the consumers 
uh, and what's seen as important among the producers of, of, of history. And it's been a subject that uh, has, has concerned me for, for some time. Well, you are a great war historian, and I think you'd be a great historian if your interests went in even in another direction. But it's been a brilliant uh, and masterly career. And James McPherson, I thank you most sincerely, not really for joining us today, which was a boon indeed. Uh, the well, thank you for uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak with you this last two hours. I've enjoyed it very oh, much. It's always wonderful on, uh, on my side. And again, uh, giving the full title of the new book by James McPherson, The War That Forged a Nation, Why the Civil War Still Matters, published by Oxford University Press. And with that, thanks again and hope to see you soon.